Hello and welcome back to Who Knew We Didn't, the podcast where we discuss different psychological concepts and try to make sense of them and figure out how they apply to our everyday lives. I'm Megan and my pod- partner in podcast over here is Marta and we're in a field. We're in a field. Well, we're in a park slash parking lot to be exact. But uh, yeah, we've decided to ditch the car recordings because it's bloody hot. And uh, so we're giving this a go. You may hear birds chirping in the background. You might hear some kids playing in a water park like 200 feet away from us. Yeah. Uh, You may hear some cars in the background, but (laughs) it's ambiance. So enjoy. Yeah. I figured I'm dehydrated enough from last night that I don't need to sweat out the remaining liter of water in my body. Yeah. Words. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, So that's the deal. And in last week's episode, we discussed the psychology of cults, which was super interesting, but both Marta and I came away from our research with even more questions and ideas for mini study study episodes. So we decided to combine all the study study ideas and do one big study study together. Um, Marta's going to be covering some very cool experiments that have been used to learn more about how cults operate. And afterwards, I will be discussing some of the cognitive biases that contribute to people's susceptibility to culthood. Cultdom? Culthood? Cult cultiness so take it away marta um okay perfect thank you so last week when we were talking about cults i came away with some studies that i wanted to do in our study study duo duo Uh, (laughs) so there's the ash conformity experiments the sharif conformity test and the milgram experience experiments so uh, in cults, we would, when we were talking about our cults episode, we were talking about how one of the signs that one of your loved ones is like joining a cult or is being indoctrinated by a cult is that they start to change what they think and they start to change like radical viewpoints change, like their religion changes or their stance on various things changes. And we were wondering why that happens. Well, it's something called conformity. It's group conformity. And it's a type of social influence involving a change in belief or behavior in order to fit into a group. And there were two studies that uh, really proved this in the lab as well. So it's not that there's some kind of like black magic happening in cults although i'm sure some of them have <laughs> some black magic some method of that yeah yeah it's not it's not just black magic but there's actually just real science behind it um and first is the ash conformity experiment and before i looked into this i didn't realize but the ash conformity experiment and the sharif test pretty much exactly the same oh. so i've basically only got two studies to talk about hey, we're even then <laughs> yeah um so they were conducted by a psychologist named solomon ash who is polish american whoop whoop polska <laughs> Um, And the participants in the study were told that they're going to be doing a spatial acuity test. So they were shown the control line, like a line drawn on a piece of paper that was a control, and then three lines beside it, like A, B, and C. They were asked, the participants were asked to say which line is the same length as the control line. And they were also told one of these lines is longer, one of them is shorter, and the one in the middle is the same length as the one on the left-hand side. So it's a very easy test, no big deal. This study was conducted with one actual participant and then six to 10 people who were just actors for the study. So, okay. yeah, so uh, when the participant was going to be answering, they had like the actors go before. So the researcher would be like, okay, picture number one, which line is longer or which line is, which line is the same? Picture number two, which line is the same, etc. And so when 
it, like this is a really easy thing to answer right like it, it's kind of tough to be like oh actually hmm like maybe one line is the same as the other line or whatever like you always know like it's b or it's c the what they found was when the people in front of the participant like that spoke before the participant when they lied or when they gave the wrong answer and they gave it consistently so let's say that the answer is b but like six people say a the participant even though they know the answer is b will say a hmm. and this was found 37 percent of the time that people will conform to what the group, group is saying conformity yeah yeah um and then the sharif conformity test also found the same thing but it was with a laser pointer so when uh the researcher would point a laser at the wall they would move it a little bit or not move it at all and then they'd ask the participants how much do you think that the laser moved along the wall and if the people lied and gave like some like if the laser pointer didn't move and the participants were like oh yeah it moved six inches then the participant the actual participant like the target of the study would also say like oh six inches just to conform hmm. which is really interesting would they say like it would they say the exact same lie or would they just admit that it had moved do you know what i mean um for the sharif test at least with the like readings that i did on it they did they said the exact same huh. thing wow um so they just like directly copied the people because they had to give an estimate of how much they thought it moved so like if somebody said six inches they'd say like six or maybe like six or seven but so that's pretty much all i know about the sharif tests because they're Word. basically exactly the same um but just all these tests have been like these results have been reproduced multiple times and they've been tested in different variants uh to see like what made the effect stronger what made the effect weaker and they found that when they gave the person a partner that would also give the right answer, the conformity went down from 37% down to 5%. Oh. Yeah, so they would, like, the participant would see, they'd see, they'd go through, like, many sheets, like, many, um, many of these questions. So the first or second one, when the participant would say, like, oh, the answer is B, when everybody else said A, the person at the end would be their partner, and they'd be like, oh, the answer was B. So it'd be like A, 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 participant says B, somebody else says A, and then the partner says B. And then conformity to the group goes down, like plummets hugely. Interesting. Yeah, which is inter like which is super interesting because of like when you think of cults. Bring a friend. Bring a friend. <laughs> bring a friend, but also bring somebody who's like not gonna conform to the group. Yeah. Yeah. So uh and, and also part of what makes cults so potent and makes it so easy to like bend people is the uniformity of the group. So and, if everybody's saying the same thing. And the isolation from other people who might challenge the idea. Huh. Yeah. Um other things that make that strengthen conformity. Oh wait. Sorry. Other things, something else that weakens conformity is when you are writing your answer on a paper instead of answering it in front of everybody else. Oh. So when you feel like you're less likely to be judged or when your actions are being less like seen, yeah. at, like as they happen, you your conformity goes down hugely as well. That makes me think of, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but there were so many when I was growing up where when the class had to vote on something, if it was something the teacher was like afraid of people pairing up on their answers, they'd make you put your head down and everybody raise their hand and that's how yes, they would do it. They wouldn't yes. like let you see how other people are voting. Yes, I remember. Huh. Yeah, or it's like when the teacher thought it would be something that you'd be embarrassed to vote for. Yes, they make it as anonymous as possible. Yeah. Um... 
Next up, things that strengthen conformity are if the participant is made to feel incompetent or insecure before, which the environment does to cult members yeah. before like they even start to get recruited. Like your environment makes you feel insecure, incompetent, kind of like depression, being left, whatever. So that's really cool. Something else that's cool is, or something else that strengthens conformity is if you're in a group of three or more. So if there's only one other person that's telling you to do something or two other people, you're less likely to conform than if you're in a group with four other people telling you to do something. So huh. the bigger the cult, the easier it is to force people to conform. It's funny that the number is like, like as simple as from three to four. Three or more. Or sorry, yeah, three yeah. or more. Yeah. It's as, as low as that. Huh. Cray. Um, it's also something that strengthens conformity, which we already talked about is if all of those people agree. So if everybody is uniform next up, if you admire the group based on status and attractiveness, and that one's going to come up in our next experiment that we're talking about. So if you feel like this, per the people that are telling you to do this thing are like of high status or of high worth, then you're more likely to conform. Also, if you feel others are watching, so that's the thing where you're watch writing down paper on paper, your answer. And finally, if you're from a culture that values conformity. So like Western cultures really value conformity mm -hmm. because like in high school, we're told to conform frats. You're told to like fraternities and uh, what's the female version of sororities, yeah. um, clubs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So we really value conformity and like it's a social lubricant if you're conforming all the time. So you're more likely to conform if you come from that kind of a culture. Um. And that's it for the conformity experiments. Next up, I have the Milgram experiment. And this is fucked. Like, <laughs> you gotta um, love it when it starts with this, this is fucked. fucked. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about when we talked about cults last week, we talked about, well, we asked the question, what would make somebody kill for a cult? Yeah. Or what would make somebody do like evil things for a cult? Yeah. And here's a study that looks into the same thing and kind of like forces participants to do the same thing. So uh, it was in the 1960s, a Yale University professor called, uh, named Stanley Milgram started thinking about his, this study. And it was during a widely publicized trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was uh, an SS man in concentration camps in Germany. Mm. And he was being put on trial for his crimes of war crimes. Yeah, his yeah. war crimes. And during this trial, he said that he sent people off to their deaths in concentration camps because he was told to. Because his higher-ups, the groups of higher-up officers, told him to. Yeah. And while the um, while the judge and jury didn't really find that as a like Valid. good enough excuse, yeah. it's actually kind of true. It's actually like totally, totally true. What Milgram found in his studies. So he wants to know what the average person is capable of when under orders. So the study, the original study was formed like this. There were 40 male volunteers and they had a phony shock ge generator. So there was a shock generator and an electric chair. Uh, the shock generator had 30 switches, which ranged from 30 volts, which is just like a twinge to 450 volts, which I'm pretty sure could kill you. Mm -hmm. And also That's like fry an egg. Yeah. Yeah. So it, uh, and each switch like was in increasing voltage. So you'd start off at 30 and it would go up. Um, it was two participants. And I say this with air quotes participants because there was one actual participant. And again, it was rigged. So the other supposed participant was actually a colleague of Milgram. They would draw straws to see who would be a teacher and who would be a learner. The person who was the teacher was always the volunteer 
the like the actual participant, the volunteer participant, because the drawing of straws was rigged. Okay. And so the like colleague would be put into the learner situation. Uh, in the study, the participant was told that the other person had to learn a series of words and then they would complete a memory recall task task so whenever the person got a word wrong the actual participant the teacher was supposed to administer an electric shock and so the whole idea was like electric shocks or like punishment could help improve learning yeah like that was the mask study uh what they found was that if the teacher so the actual participant if they hesitated there was a researcher who was also just an actor in the room with them uh, and they would be wearing like a white lab coat and they would be standing directly behind the person. And so if the teacher hesitated whenever going to administer an electric shock, the researcher would say things like, please continue. Next is this experiment requires you to continue. Next is it is absolutely essential that you continue. And number four is you have no choice but to continue. So in increasing degrees of intensity, but kind of being like, don't hesitate, do this, administer the shock. Um, What they found was that three or two thirds of the participants would deliver up to 450 volts. So they would deliver the maximum voltage. Wow. Yeah. Um, And everybody gave at least up to 300 volts. So there wasn't a single person in that first study that did not give up to 300 volts. Wow. Which is nuts. And that's just because they were Just because they were told to. Yeah. So as part of a study, they were told like, okay, you have to administer these shocks. And the person in the chair was like acting. They'd like scream and like So no one was actually shocked at all. Nobody was actually shocked, but the participant thought they were shocking someone. Wow. So that experiment got really robust results. Like two thirds of the people shocked up to... 450 volts which is the absolute maximum it's insane so people will do crazy things because they're told to and these people like it wasn't even oh you're part of a cult or you're part of like yeah that's leaving aside the fact that this is somebody i've been like brainwashed to trust yeah conditionally yeah these were and there were 40 male volunteers so they were honestly all university students so they were all just like probably white men in their 20s uh right at the perfect time to be taken in by a cult also true right at the right time to fucking shock the living shit out of somebody or at least think they're going to yeah so this study researched the effects of social influence and conformity uh and they repeated it multiple times and they found the same thing like people would always listen and the things that increased their willingness to oblige is when the researcher was nearby um or when the researcher was further they wouldn't be obedient and then also if the researcher was an authority figure so if they were dressed in a uniform yeah. they're more likely I to was comply gonna s- see if you said anything about that lab coat being part of it yeah so when they were dressed in like layman's clothes people were less likely to comply uh, also if the participant was told that the researcher was from a prestigious institution like oh this person's from yale versus this person's from like no name college down the street <laughs> I didn't want to insult any like actual. No, like no, it was perfect. <laughs> um, and then they found that if the victim was depersonalized, so if the victim like if they never met the victim, if they didn't meet like didn't know their names or anything, like it was just a person in a chair, or if the person had like a bag over their heads or something, then they were more likely to be obedient. So wow. the um, so if it's an anonymous victim, yeah. Yeah, if they couldn't hear the screams, they were less likely to. Uh, they were more likely to conform. And if they, if the victim was far away, 
they were more likely to conform. So if the victim was like right up against the glass in the room, then they were more compassionate. But if the victim was like at the end of the room, people were more likely to conform. Wow. So it's crazy. And like cults kind of um, take advantage of the same thing. Like Nazism, the whole thing about putting people into concentration camps, like you're just a number. You have a barcode tattooed on you. That's it. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's it. That's the Mil- Milgram experiment. And it's fucked. That, that evil, is fucked. It's like you don't need evil people to do evil things. You just need one evil person to tell everyone to do evil things. Yeah. You just need a leader. Yeah. Which, as we learned last week, is something common among cults is that they have a a head guy, a head guru. Huh. Guru. I was wondering if I could start a cult after last week. If you could start a cult? Oh, I like think from what we learned any. last week, yes, anyone could start a cult. As far as how much success you're going to have in starting a cult, I don't know. I don't think you should start out with the intention of beginning a cult. I think that you should gain followers for something first and then see what you can do with Hashtag that Hashtag WKW. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would do. Mostly because that's what the Reverend Jim Jones did. And it worked out really well for him as far as becoming a cult leader. He got people for a podcast? Uh, Well, he got a lot of podcasts done about him. (laughs) True. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks, Marta. Uh, I guess I'll take my turn now, and I will tell you about a couple of cognitive biases. Yes. uh, That affect the world of culthood as well. But first, I'm going to tell you what a cognitive bias is. I thought that would be a good baseline, mostly because Marta suggested it would be a pretty good baseline. (laughs) Uh, So a cognitive bias, that is a systematic pattern of deviation from the norm or rationality in judgment. So people uh, basically create their own subjective reality from their perception of the input that they're receiving. So this is where a cognitive bias can come in and lead to perceptual distortion, um, inaccurate judgment, illogical interpretations. Basically, it's like just irrationality. Uh, It happens when someone makes a bad choice that they think is a good choice. Often it's a result of evolution. Some behaviors were good for primitive humans and animals, but they seem really foolish today. Uh, Cognitive biases may not always be bad. Um, They could actually lead to more effective actions in some contexts. And cognitive biases do enable faster decision making when timeliness is more valuable than accuracy. Question. What's What's an example of something that was good for us to do in the past, but is no longer good for us to do? Um, I found that a lot of my like real world applied examples as far as when I was doing my research, a lot of it related to driving. And so you'll you'll hear me bring that up in both of the biases that I want to talk about today. So one could be like, if you have a bias that says, I'm a better driver than the average driver, and you're in a hairy situation, that cognitive bias could actually give you the confidence or, you know what I mean? Like it could give huh. you the confidence that you're a better driver. And like, that could be the thing that, helps you with your your decision making to get you out of a hairy driving situation and like be a quick thinking defensive driver I didn't as even opposed consider to that. like being delayed and crashing into somebody yeah huh cool anyway we'll we'll talk more about driving situations kind of like driving in general 
was in the forefront of my mind as I did all of my research. Were you, were I was you also, driving somewhere? No, I was planning a drive somewhere at the same oh. time. So it uh, maybe that's why. But uh, anyway, we'll talk about that more in a moment. Um, we're going to start with the self-serving bias, which is uh, something Marta brought up in last week's episode. And basically, it's something that um, she found could leave a person vulnerable to be recruited into a cult. So a self-serving bias is any cognitive or perceptual process that is distorted by the need to maintain and enhance one's self-esteem or the tendency to perceive oneself as like in an overly favorable manner. Essentially, people attribute their success to their own abilities and efforts, but they attribute failure to external factors. So, (laughs) I know very much about this. Well, like, I mean, I relate to it. Yeah. No. Oh, me too. Of course you do. We all do. (laughs) Um, When individuals reject the, like, validity of negative feedback or overlook their faults and failures, uh, instead they just focus on their strengths and their achievements and they're protecting their ego, basically, from threat or from injury. So, for example, a student gets a really good grade and they attribute that to their intelligence or that they were really prepared for the test or whatever. But when they get a really bad grade, they would attribute that to unfair questions on that test or the teacher is a bad teacher they have shitty teaching methods or maybe it's like that teacher has it out for me or something like that so when you fail you blame external factors when you succeed you um attribute it to internal strengths yeah Yeah. so your ego is either like fed or protected either way um both motivational processes like self-enhancement and self-presentation and cognitive processes like focus of control and self-esteem influence the self-serving bias. And there are both cross-cultural, like individualistic and collectivistic culture differences, and also special clinical populations like depression um, can be a consideration within this bias. Um, So there are a few ways to test for a cognitive bias. The first is lab testing. So this would be like participants would perform some task and often it's one of intelligence or social sensitivity um, or like teaching ability or therapy skills or something like that. So after completing the task, participants would be given random and fake feedback. So it could be feedback that would like be driven to have some sort of like emotion inducing result uh, to moderate the effect of the self-serving bias. And in the end, participants make attributions for their outcomes. So and those get assessed by the researchers to determine the implications for the self-serving bias. So they are asked after the test, like once they get their results, they are asked to say, um, like, why do you think you got these results and explain Basically, if it was successful, was it something you did or was it an external factor and kind of go from there? Um, So that would be the kinds of lab testing that you might see. Um, There's also been neural experimentation with this. So some more modern testing employs neural imaging techniques to supplement the lab procedures that I mentioned a moment ago. They've used EEG as well as fMRI imaging for this. And these procedures allow for insight into the brain area activity during the exhibition of self-serving bias, as well as mechanisms to differentiate brain activity between health and clinical populations. Uh, finally, there are naturalistic investigations. So basically, this is like a retrospective look at outcomes. So an example of this would be like a reported 
company performance uh, evaluation followed by self-reports. So the self-report can then be used to assess how successes and failures are viewed by an employee and the executives. And it can be used for a a bunch of different variables to determine the presence or absence of a self-serving bias. So basically you get your, you get your annual review and then you're given an opportunity to respond to it. And Ah. like, how do you, so it's retrospective, it's looking back. It's not something that's happening in the moment, but it still helps you um, identify the presence of or absence of a self-serving bias. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Um, there are some factors and variables that go along with the self-serving bias. There, there are several actually, but I'm only going to name a few. Um, the first is locus of control. Uh, and this means like the degree of control that people believe they have over the events in their life. Basically. You're reminding me of so many things from my psych undergrad. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we learned about locus of control. Like not so many things like as in, oh, I have so much to add to this. Just like all of this feels so familiar. It's like review for for you. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 Um, So if um, if someone has an internal locus of control, they believe that they have personal control over situations and that their actions matter. Uh, An example of this would be airplane pilots with an internal locus of control, uh, we're likely to exhibit a self-serving bias in regard to their skill and levels of safety on the plane. Um, If someone has an external locus of control, they believe that outside forces, chance, luck, stuff like that, those determine situations and that their actions really can't change anything. And they're more likely to exhibit self-serving bias following failure. Like it's easier for them to blame external factors to begin with. and so it's easier for them to blame external attack, uh, factors rather than take responsibility for their own internal factors. Um, now, if you're someone who exhibits both, then you actually like both an external and internal locus of control. You likely have less of a need to defend against your self-image and success. So you're probably less likely to exhibit a self-serving bias. I feel by like nature. these people are the more well-adjusted. One would hope. Um, (laughs) Another uh, variable is gender. In uh, self-report surveys investigating partner interactions between romantic couples, men tended to attribute negative interactions to their partners more than Mm. women did. So, yeah, men may (laughs) exhibit... I know. How many things do you want to say right now, right? Um, Men may exhibit the self-serving bias more than women, though it is worth noting that this study didn't actually look at positive interaction attribution. It only looked at negative, Um, but still. Uh, Also, age is another factor. So older adults have been shown to make more internal attributions for negative outcomes. So it may be more likely to exhibit a self-serving bias in your younger years than as you get older. Um, Again, worth noting, older adults who were attributed with negative outcomes um, to more internal factors also rated themselves to be in worse health. And so in negative emotional factors could also be um, um, affecting those results. What is it about being older that makes you not need to protect your ego anymore? I don't know, but it's it's totally a thing. Um, Taylor's grandmother said this wonderful thing a while ago. Um, I forget what it was we were talking about, but she said that basically like she's too old to get embarrassed by things. And so she just like doesn't worry about yeah she's too old to give a shit and so she doesn't worry about 
doing something that's embarrassing because like she doesn't have time for that and that's I was like so sweet nanny you're the best anyway so I also want to mention self-esteem and emotion and also self-awareness and probability of improvement as my final two uh, factors and variables here. Mm -hmm. So for self-esteem and emotion, uh, so people with higher self-esteem are thought to have more to protect and therefore they are more likely to exhibit the um, self-serving bias. People with that are in an emotional state, like they're feeling very guilty about something, are maybe less likely to um, exhibit the self-serving bias for success and less likely to make self-protecting attributions during failure because they already feel bad about themselves. Um, For self-awareness and probability of improvement, and I thought this one was really interesting, people with a really high level of self-awareness attribute failure internally when they perceive uh, an opportunity for personal improvement those people sound like the best people yeah but they might attribute failure to external factors if they perceive it to be a low probability of self-improvement so if basically if they don't look at the situation as one they can learn from they'll blame external factors but if it's something they can learn from they would blame themselves also another thing that i think ties into it is self-efficacy so like if you think you have the ability to learn from a situation versus if you don't think you're like good enough to learn from it maybe oh maybe Yeah. And that would also bring back in that emotional thing, uh, that emotional point I made earlier as well, that like if you are in a state that says I'm not good enough, basically. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. Yeah. So that's the self-serving bias. And I would also now like to move on to the optimism bias, which is the bias I mentioned in last week's episode. Um, Definitely thought you said autism bias. Nope. Optimism. So sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. (laughs) Next up, I would like to talk about the optimism bias, which is the bias that I brought up in last week's cult episode. It's uh, it's what causes a person to believe that they're at a lesser risk of experiencing a negative event compared to other people. So um, you walk into a situation thinking you're at lower risk of, of being converted into a cult. Um, anyway. I can't be converted. That won't happen to me. Not me. Ain't gonna happen to me. Nuh-uh. No. Um, it's very common. Very, very common in all walks of life and in a lot of different situations. Um, there are four factors that cause a person to be optimistically biased. Um, their desired end state, their cognitive mechanisms, the information that they have about themselves versus others, and their overall mood. So, so so many examples of this like this thing happened to somebody else but it's not going to happen to me or the one that I brought up last week was uh, more specific was that a lot of smokers think that they're at a lower risk of getting like lung disease than other smokers even though they smoke just as much or more than the average smoker yeah Um, in the case of people being recruited into cults optimism bias exists because they have been like promised to find something in a lot of cases like they've been promised to find hope or they've been promised to find an answer and therefore they expect to find it there when they when they arrive um and they also don't think that they are at risk of being converted into something bad because they are optimistically biased yeah Um, can you imagine if you're like oh i'm being recruited into a cult but like it's probably a good cult yeah Or like, it might be a cult, but like, I just like these people. It's not like I'm a member. It's not like I'm like in the cult. It can't be an evil cult because they're so nice. Yeah, exactly. Um, So there are 
positive and negative events in which an optimism bias might be present. So for positive events, it would be like believing yourself to be more financially successful than other people. And for negative events, it would be like assuming that you are less likely to having a drinking problem than somebody else, even though you both drink the same amount. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's stronger. The optimism bias is stronger with negative events and different consequences result from these two types of events. So in positive events in which the optimism bias is present, it often leads to feelings of well-being and like higher self-esteem. But for negative events where the optimism bias is present, it could lead to consequences involving more risk, such as engaging in riskier behavior or not taking precautionary measures for your safety. Um, There are a few ways to test uh, optimism bias, but most typically it's measured through two determinants of risk. Absolute risk, where individuals are asked to estimate their likelihood of experiencing a negative event compared to their actual chance of experiencing it. Um, So like uh, comparing against yourself. And then comparative risk, where individuals are asked to estimate the likelihood of experiencing a negative event, um, like their personal risk compared to other people of the same age and gender and like the same factors basically. And that's a target risk estimate. Mm -hmm. Um, It's difficult to measure absolute risk because it's extremely difficult to determine the actual risk statistic for one person. So optimism bias is primarily measured in comparative risk forms where people are comparing themselves against others through direct and indirect comparisons. So a direct comparison would be Like you ask an individual whether their own risk of experiencing an event is less than, greater than, or equal to somebody else's. And an indirect comparison would be asking someone to provide separate estimates of their own risk of experiencing an event and another person's risk of experiencing the same event. Um, After obtaining the scores, researchers would use that information to determine if there's a difference in the average risk estimate of the individual compared to the average risk estimate of their peers. And generally in negative events, the average risk of an individual appears lower than the risk estimate for other people. So you like, on average, you think that your own risk is lower than someone else's. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, So many factors go into this. Um, uh, Like I mentioned earlier, desired end state from a comparative judgment. Part of this bias comes from um, the goals that people want and the outcomes that they wish to see. So kind of like I was mentioning earlier, when you go to a cult, you expect to find hope. So that's what you find there. Um, People tend to view that they're at a lower risk of things because they believe that this is what they're going to find or this is what others want to see in them. Um, then there's self enhancement and basically this means it feels good to think that good things are going to happen to you. Um, people can control their anxiety and other negative emotions if they believe that they're better off than others. People tend to focus on finding information that supports what they want to see happen rather than what will actually happen to them because it's what they want their outcome to be. Um, And it might also be a way of making yourself look better. Like people decide they're at less of a risk than other people and therefore they're better than other people. I mean, it's not true, John. You're not better than everyone else. I know, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, Self-presentation. So people attempt to establish and maintain a desired persona 
or personal image um, in social situations. Like we want to be presented in a good light. Um, in a study where participants believed that their driving skills would be tested in either real life or in a driving simulation, um, people who believed that they were going to get tested had less of an optimistic bias and were more modest about their skills than individuals who would not be tested. So like if they were comparing themselves, like huh. if they thought I was going into the test and I thought you were not, and I was asked to rate my skills, I'd probably rate you to be a better driver because I was going to be the one that had to prove it. Huh. Yeah. Um, studies also suggest that individuals who present themselves in a pessimistic and more negative light are generally less accepted by the rest of the society. So, like, like you don't want to be friends with pessimistic people. Or, sure. like, you know what, it, you know what I mean? Um, so self-presentation contributes to optimistic bias because we want to present ourselves positively and appear more well-off than others, though it might not be like a conscious choice that we're making there. Um, and then finally, personal control and perceived control. So people tend to be more optimistically biased when they think that they have more control over events than other people do. So an example of this would be people are more likely to think that they won't be harmed in a car accident if they are driving. But um, in an opposing factor of perceived control is that of prior experience. So prior experience is typically associated with less optimistic bias because um, it could be either from a decrease in the perception of personal control or it could be that the prior experience makes it easier for individuals to imagine themselves being at risk. So this is where I thought a lot about driving. <laughs> uh, yeah. Was that just like, and I feel that too. Like it's, it made me think of side seat driving or back seat driving or something like that because you're not the one controlling the vehicle. You don't think that the person who's driving is doing a good job, even though like they may be doing a better job than you. It's just, you're not the one in control. Do you want to know something? Of course. Um, the driver is actually less likely to get injured in an accident because they, like, your reflexes are self-protective. So um, being on the furthest corner away from the driver in the car, like, being behind the passenger seat is actually the most dangerous seat. Because when people, like, swerve to avoid something, they tend to swerve their own selves away from it. And, like, if their body must hit something, they use, or, like, if the car must hit something, they use the corner of the car that's the furthest away from them. Wow. Yeah. So the, like, um, if you're looking at a car from behind, the right tail light is the worst place to be. Huh. Because that's... They That's always like, like the furthest thing away from the driver. Yeah, they always tend to like drivers tend to turn the car so that they're further away. So if they're to crash into something, it's the passengers that get fucked. Huh. Wow. Um, so there are some variables that go into this as well. The first is called representativeness heuristic. So it's a big term, but basically mouthful. what it means. Yeah, it's a mouthful. Basically, it's used when making judgments about an event under uncertainty, like you're given an abstract example. We tend to think um, in really stereotyp stereotypical categories rather than about the actual situation when we're making a comparison. So to use another driving ex example, when drivers are asked to think about a car accident, they're more likely to associate a bad driver than just an average driver. So like when it's an abstract comparison, they're hmm. more likely to think of the driver being a bad driver to begin with than being just the average driver. So basically individuals compare themselves to negative elements that come to mind rather than an overall accurate comparison between them and another driver. 
Um, so that's the representativeness heuristic. Um, next is something called singular target focus. And basically this means people know more about themselves than they do about other people. We know how to think about ourselves as a single person, but we still think of others as a more general group. And that leads to biased estimates when comparing yourself to a group when you're assessing risk. Um, generally, you would ignore what the average person might be or might do, and you primarily focus on your own feelings and experiences. Yeah, I think we talked about that a little bit in our cults episode about yeah. like groups and how you're in group versus like an out group yes. versus an other group. They yeah. seem more um, homogenous. They seem all the same versus in yours. You're like, oh, more. This is more interesting. More hetero, hetero, more diverse group. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and also when it comes to a bias, because you see, because you generalize what that group might be, you lose sight of um, accurately comparing yourself to that group. Yeah. Um, and then finally, interpersonal distance. So this is when you are comparing yourself to a target that seems far away from you, your perceived risk is lower. But if you bring that target closer to the person that's assessing risk, the risk estimate balances out. And this isn't necessarily like physically closer or further away. So uh, a better example would be you probably don't think that you'd ever end up in a cult. But if you knew somebody who was in a cult, like if you knew a cult member, or if you knew somebody like a family member or a friend who was or is in a cult, you might not feel quite so optimistic about your ability to avoid huh. or your risk of being in a cult. I wonder if that changes at all by like whether or not you respect the person or that sort of thing. Oh, I think so. I think when we look back on some of these other things that uh, I mentioned, it would be like, yeah, like you would assume that they're not a bad person, but like kind of like when you're less looking strong. When, yeah, yeah, looking at somebody as being less strong, like I, my optimism bias says I'm stronger than they are. True. Um, but yeah, if it was somebody closer to you, like a family member or a friend where you can really put yourself in their shoes, that might break your optimistic bias. Hmm. Yeah. Um, some consequences here that I want to mention, there are health consequences to the optimism bias. What? It prevents people from taking preventative measures for good health, and it leaves people unlikely to take precautionary measures in their life choices. So, for example, um, people who underestimate their comparative risk of heart disease also know less about heart disease. And even after reading an article with more information, they're still less concerned about their risk of heart disease. Um Optimism bias can be a really strong force in our decision making. So it is important to look at how risk perception is determined and how it would result in pre preventative behaviors like diet, exercise, or even sunscreen use. And I, when I saw this, I was like, oh man, I couldn't stop thinking of my mom. She loves to be outside. She does a lot of gardening. She very rarely puts on sunscreen. And like, you know me, I have incredibly fair skin. I like don't tan very easily. I wear a lot of sunscreen because I burn right away. And like, I don't, I do have trouble keeping a tan because of my skin tone. Right. Yeah. Um, and like, I'm my mother's daughter. She's fair skinned as well. But like, she lets herself be outside in the sun for hours and she doesn't really care about getting a sunburn and she doesn't really care about wearing sunscreen but why like 
Hmm. Why would you not think that you're at the same level of risk of somebody else, especially to the degree of time you spend outside? I wonder what the evolutionary basis for that is. Like, why did we develop optimism bias if it hurts us? Well, it doesn't always hurt us. So then do the benefits outweigh the costs? I don't know. Um, Or like, what's the use of worrying about cancer if you're going to get it anyway? Well, I wonder if that's another bias, actually. Don't know. Uh, Actually, no, no. I think that is another bias. Give me one second here. Because the opposite of the optimism bias is the pessimism bias, where people exaggerate the likelihood that negative things are going to happen to them or they're like outrageously worried about themselves like their future or society's future and people with depression are very likely to exhibit the pessimism bias so maybe that's what that goes to is like if we're all going to die anyway why worry about putting on sunscreen yeah I wonder not to extend this conversation more than it needs to but I wonder if that could be trained out of you like if you could be trained out of the pessimism bias well i don't know about the pessimism bias but um from everything that i read about the optimism bias it's really really hard to break huh but i also wonder like you mentioned for evolutionary purposes um probably this is an evolutionary thing like lizard brain humans had to really fight to stay to stay alive or like they had to you know go after an animal that's way bigger than them and way stronger than them because they needed to feed their tribe or whatever. And so they had to be optimistically biased to say, I'm going to succeed because otherwise they wouldn't have taken the risk to begin with and everybody would have died. True that. So maybe that's why. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Um, just a little musing by Megan there. Um, but the optimism bias made me think of so many things that we do. Like, um, like uh condom use and birth control in in like everywhere really but especially in colleges and universities like you assume that you're at a lower risk of pregnancy like even though you know the numbers that's not going to happen to me yeah you're like i'm not going to get pregnant yeah um or wearing a speed uh sorry wearing a seatbelt, speeding or using your cell phone while driving really just a lot of driving situations where you like assume that even though this is against the law or like even though this is risky, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to get hurt by it. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I have for the optimism bias that, that wraps that up. That's cool. Yeah. That's, I, I wonder like if I have an optimism bias or you fully do. I and I do I too. stress about things a lot though. Yeah, I know. But like, I don't think an optimism bias or a self-serving bias, I don't think either of them are very conscious things. They're things that your brain does to you. Like your brain kind of tricks you into thinking this way. Like I'm trying to think of an example that I would know of you, but I can't really. Don't know. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. I think that it's interesting. Like optimism bias is especially interesting. Um, like with cult recruitment like okay yeah i'm getting recruited into a cult but it's probably a good cult or something well yeah or like uh i think for myself i don't know if this is like being overly simplistic but like um i think my optimism bias would just be like i'm smarter than that and so i wouldn't even see it coming yeah that too it makes you more susceptible yeah hmm yeah 
what do you guys think listeners yeah <laughs> let us know or like if you just know more if you have better examples for us share them we'd love to hear them yeah how does how do these biases affect cult situations or actually just in your day-to-day life yeah i think even in your day-to-day life might be even more interesting to me because i've thought about it from the cult perspective and when i was doing this research yeah and as you guys come up with these answers tweet them at us using yeah. the hashtag wkwd or you can tweet at us we are at who, who knew, knew we, we didn't. didn't um really we're who knew we didn't everywhere facebook twitter instagram, instagram. you can email us at who knew we didn't at gmail.com let us know what you think and yeah or we have a patreon as well tell us how we can improve on our page or like how we can change the levels if you guys want or need yeah, if you like field recordings, if you enjoyed listening to the bird song in the background, yeah. let us know. Yeah, anyway, that's that's everything. Thank you guys for listening to our field recording. We're sorry if it sounds bad. Yes. It was nice. I was laying out here in the sun. I'm super hungover in the sun. I'm in the shade. But yeah, it was good. There was a breeze. It was, so it, was good. it was much nicer than being in a hot car. Yeah. Okay, and tune in next week for our next week's episode is going to be about ADHD and how I managed to stay focused doing anything in my life. (laughs) So tune in next week and uh, bye for now. Bye. Bye.